Well, hello and welcome back to Out of Curiosity. This is our podcast where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I'm Nick. And I'm Garland. And today we've been in this little series here talking other gods and angels and demons, and we've talked about the serpent and the Nephilim and all these fun things, but it begs the kind of larger question, what went wrong with the angels? What happened? How did some fall? How do some angels become demons? And what what happened there? <laughs> yeah, just cut and dry. Let's get into it. Just um, go for it. Well, and it would be very helpful if you're listening to this episode to go back to the rest of our series and kind of catch up on where we've been. What we're going to see is we have Yahweh at the top. There's a line between Yahweh and everything in creation, and Yahweh alone is the creator, the king, and the one worthy of worship. On the bottom of that line is everything, on the other side of that line is everything Yahweh has created. And what we've been trying to help us see is some of those things that he's created, we call, we've called them the divine council, we've called them the angels, we've called them the cherubim and the seraphim, we've talked about the Nephilim and all of that. Uh, there's a class of beings that we would call just spiritual beings that exist in this world. And we, one of the points of doing this is, we got a lot of questions about this, and so uh, we're wanting to think like the biblical reader is thinking, think like the biblical author is thinking, and and get kind of out of our mindset of the modern Western paradigm. So with that in mind, we, we really want to see when did this fall event happen, and we're gonna take them, we're gonna take this kind of in stride. If you think about the the story as the Bible is presenting itself, starting in Genesis. We're told that Yahweh has brought order and beauty to the world that he's made, Genesis chapter 1, and he's invited humanity to uh, be co-regents with him, to reign with him, and bring his goodness and beauty out into the world. That's the picture of Genesis chapter 1, and he brings humanity into the garden space to enjoy the abiding presence of himself there and then take the beauty of that out of the world. It's awesome. It's what our calling really is for. And uh, we've talked about that with the image of God before uh, in some earlier podcasts. Now, what what happens is this tragedy that begins in Genesis chapter 3, and we call it the fall, but I think we often limit the fall, quote-unquote, to just the events of the garden. Right. And that's fine. That's fair. It's not wrong. But if we think about it, what we're going to see, like when you throw a rock onto a pond, the ripple effects of this are going to be detailed for us in Genesis chapters 3 to 11. And so really all of that is describing for us the fall, quote unquote. And it begins with the story we've looked at with the serpent in the garden space. So from the very beginning, we've got this rebel agent who shows up and we're going to see as the biblical narrative unfolds that that rebel agent is in fact one of these other Elohim, this part of the divine council. So right off the bat, we often call this the fall of man, fall of mankind, but it's in conjunction. This is the thing that we're going to see in this particular episode. Humanity's rebellion is totally intertwined and bound up together, entangled with this spiritual rebellion has taken place. And you can see in the Genesis 3, 1 to 5 narrative, that comes off the page really clearly. It's humanity in league with, wedded to this spiritual rebellion that's taken place. But it doesn't stop there. If you wouldn't mind, read for us Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And we're going to see that this dark power will be at work in this narrative. Chapter 4, 7. So chapter 4, verse 7, this is God speaking to Cain. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So we're just taking it in stride. We've got this surprising, rebellious figure represented by a serpent in Genesis three. Now we've got a surprising uh, 
power behind Cain, and I don't know what kind of animal you think of when the word crouching comes in mind, but some kind of predatory animal is ready to devour and master you. Just looked at in the last episode, if we turn over to Genesis chapter 6, this crazy story (laughs) of the Nephilim and the sons of God, this class of spirit beings intermarrying, having sex with human women. So notice, look how intertwined this is. And that's that's the main point we're trying to draw out. As Genesis is presenting the spread of sin within the human condition, it's marrying it. And this is something we miss so often. It's marrying it with this spirit being spiritual rebellion. And then we get this episode of the Tower of Babel. Now, if you wouldn't mind, just summarize what happens in the Tower of Babel, and then we're going to turn our attention to... uh, very strange little note in Deuteronomy about the Tower of Babel. Yeah, so um, the, the the mandate for humanity is to spread out, to fill the earth, and to represent God on earth. And uh, instead, they decide to come together in this one place, and they build a tower. And this tower is probably the ancient Near Eastern structure of a ziggurat. And, and the idea is it's a it's a physical structure because they believed in the ancient world that, that the gods lived on a mountain. And so they're trying to build a mountain. They're trying to build a temple, an intersecting place between the realm of the gods and the realm of humans. And the idea is they're building stairs for the gods to come down and live among them. Uh, And so this goes counter to God's... uh, to Yahweh's plan for how he's going to work among people. And so he decides he's going to scatter the people's language to force them to scatter throughout the earth. Okay. So it's, it's, it seems like we've got humanity in this great rebellious moment that Yahweh has to deal with. Now, uh, the biblical author reflecting on this event, and we're going to turn over to Deuteronomy 32. So if you wouldn't mind, read Deuteronomy 32, because he's going to be reflecting on the events of the scattering of the people's uh, at the Tower of Babel, almost certainly. And uh, we're going to have to do a little bit of, of uh, text-critical work. What is going on with the manuscript? Because we're going to have some, uh, some well, disagreements here. I know. What I does that mean? That way. We're going to have a, a disagreement in the manuscript evidence as to what's going on here. So when you say and, manuscripts, uh, you mean... The ancient writings that we have found of the book of Deuteronomy. There's going to be copies. There's going to be disagreement among the copies as to what's going on here. And I think that uh, what most of the English translations have gone with are being updated to, re- to reflect the, uh, the change. So let's do Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. This is a strange little passage. All right, Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. This is out of the NIV. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. So what does your footnote say, if you have one, on verse 8, the sons of Israel? Do you have a footnote? Uh, Let's see, sons of Israel. My footnote says that the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls say the sons of God. Okay, so there's disagreement. That's what your when your Bible is giving that to or I'm you. sorry, the Masoretic text said sons of Israel, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint yes. say sons yes. of God. So we have disagreement as to which manuscript is accurate. Is the tra- is the actual words by the in the original uh, manuscript sons of Israel or sons of God? Bene Elohim or Bene Israel? That's the question. And we can get really into the nerdy weeds of this, but right. many scholars are are now recognizing that the sons of Israel is almost certainly, it's very likely to be a scribe trying to smooth out what would be a strange statement. The sons of 
Elohim, the sons of God? What is that all about? And so most of the, uh, of a lot of scholars who've been looking at this are inclined to view that the NIV's translation of the sons of Israel as the wrong mm-hmm. understanding of what's going on there in the manuscript. And it should read, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. What's the picture here? When Yahweh spread the nations, spread, scattered them out at the Tower of Babel incident, the author's reflecting on this. He says, God apportioned his divine counsel. He apportioned the nations to his particular, to this particular group of angels or spirit beings. He scattered them out, and there were 70 that went out. So he put 70 spirit beings, we might say, tasked with, with, guarding or tasked with leading or tasked with overseeing the nations. And then that makes sense of verse nine now, but Yahweh took Jacob. He chose Israel as his particular, that was the, the people group that he had particular his eye on, we might say. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, we get this picture in Deuteronomy that their spirit beings have been apportioned to all of the nations. Now flip over with me to Psalm chapter 82. We began this series here by looking at the divine council, and we got to see what's going on with this divine council right here. So remember, here's right, we're right in the story. There's a wedded, there's a there's a wedding of the human rebellion and the spiritual rebellion being told to us in the ripple effects of the fall, Genesis 1 to 11, and it culminates with the scattering of, pe- of the peoples all over the earth. Later, biblical authors reflecting on this say, yeah, that's where the Elohim were sent out with those different people groups. These these Elohim were sent with them. And in Psalm 82, God is going to then speak concerning this divine counsel. Look at what he says, verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. So something's gone wrong. That's the point. Something has gone wrong. God sits in the assembly of the gods. That's what mm-hmm. verse 1, Elohim sits in the assembly of El, of the God. He renders judgment among the God's the Elohim. And what does he judge? Look at verses two to four. They have they have committed injustice. They've been they've been wicked. They have done evil things. What this is saying is the injustice and the betrayal and the brokenness of the human condition that we see in the world is intertwined with this spiritual rebellion. And it always has been. We might say that there is there is a power and a force that is operative in the world that is spiritual and that is in play. And Yahweh is bringing judgment here on those particular uh, parts of his divine counsel, those spirit beings who have been in bed with or in league with the rebel human condition. Now, that's really strange, right? Yeah. So when we when we take all of this from our Old Testament and put all those pieces together, uh, what we're going to see is we can we can place the timing of the fall of at least this first spirit being, this serpent who's in the garden. Something's taken place with his pride before he entices humanity to sin. Okay, so something is broken before that. The rest of the story is a little bit unclear, and we've said uh, in previous episodes of this podcast. By the time we get to the period between the Old Testament being completed, so about 400 BC, and Jesus coming onto the scene, you know, about 30 AD, that's called the intertestamental period. We have lots of different names for that. Those. Those followers of Yahweh, those Hebrew readers of their Old Testament have reflected on all of this, and they have begun to now see this. We have a term now for these kinds of beings. They've kind of dwindled all this story down to really, there's Yahweh at the top, Mm -hmm. then there's some of the divine counsel who are good. We call those 
angels. Yep. Now we're getting familiar to what we tend to think. Yep. Then there's some of those divine counsel who have gone bad, and we call those daimonion. And daimonion just made it's just a Greek word made into an English word, which is demon. Right. So by the time we get to the New Testament understanding of all of this, they go: there's Yahweh, there's the good Elohim, angels, there's the bad Elohim, demons. Right. It's not surprising. So we've said last time that this is the gospel gets gets blown up to be so much cooler. It is not surprising then that when Jesus shows up on the scene, we can go to Mark 1, we pick, look at any of the beginnings of your gospel accounts, especially the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus shows up on the scene. He begins to proclaim that he's bringing freedom from the, enslave, the slavery to sin that humans have gotten found themselves in mess to. He says, here comes freedom. Here comes the Jubilee year. Here comes the Messiah. I am here to set you free. He presents, presents himself as the king, and he says, this is the gospel. What immediately begins to happen? And this, by the way, is almost nowhere in the Old Testament. Right. Immediately, we start seeing these things called daimonions, demons, rebelling against him. Yeah. It's as if they know what's going on here. This mm-hmm. has been lurking in the background of the human condition throughout the story. And it's not surprising that immediately when Jesus says, here I am, I'm the one who's come to conquer the evil powers that have been enslaving humanity that they begin to push back and fight back. right? Uh, and so when we see Jesus making statements like he does in the Gospel of Luke, he says, I, it's, it, Luke chapter 10, he sends his disciples out. Now, remember, there were 70 Elohim put over the nations in mm-hmm. uh, the Tower of Babel. Jesus sends 70 of his disciples out, hmm. and some, some commentators have said it's not surprising. Jesus chose 70 as his number. Remember what happens when they come back? They say, we, were do- we cast out demons, and we did miracles and all that. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Hmm. This is the victory that I'm coming to bring. Uh, that, the, those New Testament authors have reflected on all of this, and the, the writer to, of our awesome apocalypse that we are scared to read oftentimes, Revelation, <laughs> is, is simmering and stewing on all of this, and I know we read it previously in another episode, but if you wouldn't mind, read for us Revelation chapter 12, and we'll start reading in verse... Three, and you'll see him commenting on all of this. This will be the clincher, we might say, as they've reflected and stewed on all this. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So he calls this a sign. He's, re- he's giving us a symbol of a story that he's trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And what is the story? There's this dragon who's representative of this dark power, this power of sin in the world, and he swept away a third. Remember, the stars are often seen as a way to describe these Elohim. A third of those stars he swept away, and he's been at war with the plan of Yahweh from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so the writer of the Revelation simmering on all of this, and he 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 can't make a statement without like that without thinking through this lens. Now, we want to be able to think through this lens, and it's challenging for us, I know. Uh, to put a bow on this, um, we see Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, and I know we've noted this, but I hear it again. Paul says, I want you to be able to stand, because there's rulers and authorities and powers out there, and your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual, these spiritual forces in the heavenly places. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, we were we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay, we're like, I get that. And then he says, in which we used to walk according to the, the course of this age. And then he says, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's that wedding again of the human and spiritual rebellion. Paul looks at himself. This gets me so fired up. He looks at those who were Jesus followers as bringing the pronouncement that victory has been accomplished in Jesus's death and resurrection. And we are bringing that victory out into the world. We're literally pushing back on the evil powers in the world when we champion the message of the gospel. And man, that gets me so pumped up pumped up about what it means to be a Jesus follower. And so just even uh, when we think like the ancient audience, it makes so much of the Bible begin to kind of come back to life for us. And that's been one of the, the designs of going through this series. Well, that is a powerful view of the gospel and how it reaches beyond even our individual selves to the, the larger cosmic kingdom of God. So thanks for sharing, Garland, and uh, thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity as we discussed how Lucifer and the angels fell. We encourage you to look into this more in Out of Curiosity, episodes 44, 45, and 46, in Unseen Realm by Michael Heisler, in The Cosmic Mountain in Canaan and the Old Testament by Richard Clifford, in Revelation 12, and in Psalm 82. If you want to send in questions or contact us, go to oocuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at oocuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.